I want you to consider for a moment, uh, it's the third largest religion in the United States. Its churches are spread across all 50 states. They have more than six and a half million members. Every year, thousands of men and women who consider themselves Christians join this religion. They convert to this religion. And once they do, they still consider themselves to be Christians. Even though this religion teaches that the Garden of Eden wasn't in the Middle East, it was actually, who knew this, in western Missouri. Even though this religion teaches that in eternity my wife can be eternally pregnant and inhabit our planet with spirit children. Even though this religion teaches that the Bible isn't sufficient, but four other holy books are needed. Every, even though this religion teaches that Jesus Christ wasn't the creator of heaven and earth, he was actually created as Satan's brother. Even though this religion teaches that God was once a sinful man who worked his way up to Godhood, and you can do the same, working yourself up to Godhood as long as you're a man. Sorry, ladies, all bets are off for you. <laughs> this religion calls itself Christian. Even though it's teaching about God and the Bible is unbiblical, it's teaching about Jesus Christ is unbiblical, and it's teaching about salvation is unbiblical. Every year, thousands of Christians convert to this religion because the nice-looking, handsome Mormon missionaries on their bicycles come door to door, knock on doors, and convince nominal Christians that they themselves are just a better rendition of Christians. Well, the explosive growth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, is a sad example of what can happen when two things go terribly wrong in the church. Number one, when Christian pastors and teachers aren't faithfully teaching their congregations the Word of God. And number two, when Christians aren't studying the Scriptures to make sure what they're being taught is in line with God's Word. Well, we're going to talk about that. Such an important study today as we dive into Acts chapter 17. When we left off last week at the end of Acts 16, Paul and Silas had just been released from prison in the Greek city of Philippi. After being falsely accused of insurrection and rioting, Paul and Silas were tossed into prison, into a dungeon after they had been severely beaten. And there they were with their feet in stocks. They couldn't sleep. They couldn't get comfortable. They were probably miserable with their backs throbbing in pain. But at midnight, they did something really, really weird. <laughs> Instead of grumbling and complaining what most of us would have done in their shoes... Instead of grumbling and complaining, what do they do? They start praying and they start singing in the slammer. Well, that was a great message we looked at last week. A wonderful lessons there as they were praising God at midnight in the midst of their storm. There they were praising God, singing praises to him. Remember what happened by the end of the night. The jailer and his entire family had accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, the next day, uh, Paul and Silas left the city of, of Philippi and headed to the next city. 
And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 17 of Acts. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. As Paul and Silas move on to their second key city there in Macedonia, the area we know as northern Greece. Here we are in Acts 17, starting in verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, "Uh, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason, uh, uh, Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond. And they let them go. May God bless us as we study and live out his word today. Well, it had likely been only a couple months since Paul had seen the vision of that man from Macedonia, northern Greece, calling him, help, come and help us out. And Paul had interpreted that vision as a sign from God that God was calling them into Europe, calling them into northern Greece that area of Macedonia, to share the good news of Jesus Christ where the gospel had not yet been heard. And so Paul set his sights, first of all, on Philippi, a key city in northern Greece. And after he was asked to leave Philippi, he and Silas set set their sights on the capital of Macedonia, the city known as Thessalonica. Thessalonica was about 100 miles southwest of Philippi. Thessalonica was a a very strategic city. You can see on the map here. Philippi to Thessalonica, about 100 miles southwest. Very strategic city. It was, as I mentioned, the capital of Macedonia. It was also a harbor town strategically located there at the head of the Thermaic Gulf. Thessalonica was a thriving commercial center. So Paul knew that if that city was reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, many other cities in Macedonia could be reached as well. So Luke tells us in verse 1 that Paul and Silas passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia on their way to Thessalonica. At the time, there was a famous Roman road that stretched between Philippi and Thessalonica. It was called the Via Ignatia. Translation, it was the way of Ignatia or the Ignatia way. So it stretched from Philippi to Thessalonica, actually far beyond that. And along that path were those two cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia. Since it was a hundred mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica, our best guess is, 
Paul and Silas spent the night in those two cities mentioned here in verse 1. Uh, but they evidently didn't do any ministry in those two cities. Perhaps there wasn't a Jewish synagogue. Perhaps Paul just had his sights set on the capital. And so he didn't want to waste any time getting to Thessalonica. And so finally they arrive. There's no mention of Timothy or Luke being with Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. So many Bible scholars believe uh, that they didn't actually go to Thessalonica at this time. Uh, If they didn't, that means they had stayed behind in Philippi. Because remember, Paul and Silas were kicked out of town, but Luke and Timothy weren't. So it sounds just like Paul. Hey, guys, I'm not quite done with the ministry here, so I'm going to pass the baton on to you guys. You finish the work here in Philippi and then meet up with us in a few weeks or a few months once your work is done here in Philippi. Uh, This ministry in Thessalonica, uh, Luke here in the book of Acts, chapter 17, just gives us the briefest of summaries of what Paul's ministry entailed there in Thessalonica. But thankfully, later in the New Testament, in two of Paul's letters, First and Second Thessalonians, he gives us more details of how his ministry went there in Thessalonica. A couple quick examples. First Thessalonians 2, verse 9, Paul writes, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you there in Thessalonica. And then over in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he writes this in chapter 3. He says, We were not idle when we were with you in Thessalonica, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Well, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, that Paul's trade was being a tent maker. That's what he did for a living. He made tents and he sold tents. And so in all likelihood, Paul spent several months in the city of Thessalonica paying his and Silas's own way by making and selling tents. And while there, he preached the message of salvation to both Jews and Gentiles completely free of charge. And he boasts about that a bit in his two letters to the Thessalonians, excerpts I just read for you a moment ago. Here in Acts 17, Luke's focus isn't so much on Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in Thessalonica. Uh, For one reason or another, Luke focuses on Paul's ministry in the synagogue of Thessalonica to the Jews who were there. Notice verses 2 and 3. Luke writes, As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. So unlike in in Philippi, there was a Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica. And according to verse 2, over the course of three Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. I want you to notice these five key verbs that Luke uses here in verses 2 through 4 to explain and describe Paul's preaching and teaching. Look at each of these. Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. He explained certain things to them in the synagogue. He proved, he proclaimed, and he persuaded. 
So, number one, he reasoned with them. Because trusting in Jesus Christ is a reasonable thing to do. Wouldn't you agree? It is reasonable to accept Christ. Because Jesus Christ is amazing. Uh, The grace and mercy and forgiveness that he can bestow upon you is greater than any grace, mercy, or forgiveness that anyone else in the universe can give. It is reasonable to accept Jesus Christ. Paul reasoned with him. Uh, We explain, like Paul did, who Jesus is and what he did. Paul was explaining to the Jews who Jesus was and what he did. Number three, he proved that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Christ and the Son of the living God. Don't we do the same when we share Christ with someone? We prove that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Number four, Paul proclaimed the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can't share the gospel unless we do the same. We have to focus on that DBR of Jesus Christ, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And finally, number five, Paul persuaded them to accept Christ as their Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. In sales terms, Paul closed the sale. And we have to do the same. One of the biggest mistakes that Christians tend to make when sharing their faith with non-Christians is we, we share the good news of Jesus. We share the need for Jesus. We share the scriptural backing, uh, supporting who Jesus is. He's exactly who he claimed to be. We, we focus on the death, burial and, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we share with someone how they can accept him. But we don't close the sale. We don't ask them that, that key strategic question. Are you ready to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord now? We've got to ask the question. Are you ready to accept Christ? Paul didn't miss that question. He shared the case for Jesus Christ. And he persuaded them to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord then and there. Well, what were the results of Paul and Silas's ministry in Thessalonica? Well, we can look at verse 4 to find the answer to that question. It says, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But as we've seen throughout Paul's missionary journeys, when Jesus Christ throws a punch, what does Satan do? He throws a counterpunch. We've talked about that recently. And this is no exception here as he's ministering in Thessalonica. Satan throws a counterpunch. His counterpunch here comes in the form of jealousy and some mobster-like tactics by the Jews. Certain Jewish leaders in Thessalonica became very jealous of Paul and Silas, a rising popularity. Uh, It chapped their hide to see how so many Jews were coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, More Greeks and Gentiles than Jews were accepting Christ in their city, but they were still jealous of the number of people that Paul and, and Silas were were convincing to accept Christ. And so what did these certain Jewish leaders do? Well, they decide to pay some scoundrels to form a mob and go on the rampage against Paul and Silas. This mob forms and they go to the house where Paul and Silas were staying. It was the house of a man named Jason. And Paul and Silas weren't home at the time. They had left the Airbnb. We don't know where they were, but they weren't there. 
And so the mob didn't find the two guys they were looking for. So they grab the next best thing in their minds. They grab Jason, the owner of the house, and they they drag him uh, before some of the magistrates and they throw out all these accusations against him. Uh, What was this mob uh, really saying that Paul and Silas had done? What crimes did they accuse Paul and Silas of committing? Well, I think John Stott summarizes it pretty well. He says this, the general accusation leveled against the missionaries was that they had caused trouble. This means they were causing a radical social upheaval. The verb anastatu, uh, I didn't pronounce that very well, anastatu, has revolutionary overtones. And it's used in Acts 21, verse 38, of an Egyptian terrorist who started a revolt. In particular, Paul and Silas were charged with high treason. So that's the basic charge. They're they're leveling this charge of high treason against Paul and Silas. So, what would Paul and, and, and Silas do now? Would they go back home saying enough is enough? Well, you know by now, Paul didn't have the word quit in his vocabulary. He wasn't a man to quit. I really like how Scottish theologian William Barclay says it. He says, most men would have abandoned a struggle which seemed bound to end in arrest and death. When David Livingston, a British missionary to Africa, was asked where he was prepared to go, he answered, I'm prepared to go anywhere so long as it is forward. The idea of turning back never occurred to Paul either. Isn't that good? Never occurred to Paul. Doesn't that inspire you? I tell you, it sure inspires me. I am prepared to go anywhere for Jesus as long as it's forward. Amen? The idea of turning back never occurred to David Livingston as he headed into the jungles of Central Africa. The idea of turning back never occurred to the Apostle Paul, regardless of how many times he was falsely accused or beaten or imprisoned. It didn't matter. The idea of turning back didn't even register in his brain. And it shouldn't register in ours either. It is not an option. I am perfectly fine going anywhere God calls me to go as long, Paul says, as it's forward. So when the door closed for Paul to do in-person ministry in Thessalonica, he basically said, no problem. Forward. Onward. We're moving on to the next city. And that's where we pick up in verse 10. Of Acts chapter 17. Let's look at this second city. The city of Berea. As soon as it was night. The brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there. They went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans. Were of more noble character. Than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness. And examined the scriptures every day. To see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed. As did a great number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Well, verse 10 begs the question, was Paul afraid of suffering and dying? Was he afraid of suffering and dying for the gospel? 
Is that why he snuck out of Thessalonica at nighttime? And I think you know the answers to those questions, but maybe you don't. Let me give a few scriptures that help us answer that question with certainty. Romans 8, verse 18, several years Paul would write these words to the Christians in Rome. He writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Amen? Not too long after ministering in Thessalonica and Berea, uh, Paul would write to the Philippians in Philippians 1, verse 21, and, and say this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Paul, it is very clear, was not afraid of suffering. If suffering advanced the cause of Christ, Paul would say, bring it on. Bring it on. If dying advanced the cause of Christ, Paul would say, bring it on. In fact, dying sounds great to me because I get to be with Jesus for eternity from the moment I die throughout all of eternity. Well, Paul and Silas... They didn't hightail it out of Thessalonica at night because they were scared of suffering and dying. They left because there wouldn't have been any purpose for it at that time and place. Paul's God-given mission was to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout Macedonia. And that could be more effectively done if Paul was alive in Berea instead of dead in Thessalonica. Right? It's as simple as that. The mission could better be served with Paul elsewhere, still alive. In verse 11, Luke gives us a, a wonderful little summary of Paul's ministry in Berea. This is one of my favorite verses in Acts. He writes, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is such a great Verse, The Bereans are held up in this chapter as role models for you and me. And I want us to take a, a closer look at the three marvelous things that are said about the Bereans in this verse. And we are to do our best to follow in their footsteps. Look at the first thing that set them apart from the Thessalonians. It says, number one, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thess Thessalonians. Uh, that's a curious thing to say, of more noble character. This word character is a translation of the Greek word eugenies. And that word eugenies literally means noble. But how were they more noble than the Thessalonians? Well, I want you to listen to a few other English translations and how they translate this Greek word eugenies to, to get a better handle on, on what Luke is saying here. The New Living Translation says it this way. Uh, these Bereans were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. The New Century Version writes, they were more willing to listen than those in Thessalonica. And the New Revised Standard Version says it this way. These Bereans were more receptive than those in Thessalonica. So the bottom line is, unlike so many of the Jews in Thessalonica, the Bereans were receptive and open-minded to Paul's teaching. They didn't close their ears or close their minds before listening to what he had to say. Paul's teaching seemed odd at first, but even though it might have sounded odd at first, they received it humbly. They weren't know-it-alls. They were teachable. What a wonderful thing for someone to be. 
to be teachable. Pastor Kevin DeYoung does a great job explaining what it means to be noble in God's eyes. Uh, Catch this. I think this is so well said. He writes, how telling for them and for us that nobility is measured not by titles, land, parentage, wealth, or degrees, but by how we handle the Word of God. Our approach to the Scriptures sets us apart as riffraff or royalty. Isn't that well said? I think that's so good. You and I are noble today because we were born into a famous family, right? That's why we're noble. Not according to God. Maybe according to our culture, we're normal or noble because we're born into a, a royal family or because we're rich or because we have a degree from Harvard or are TikTok famous. Our culture might look at us and say, now that's a noble person. But that's not how God de- defines being noble. In God's eyes, we're noble if we knock the chip off our shoulders and humbly hunger and thirst for His Word. That's noble in God's eyes. Well, the Bereans, it says, were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. But it didn't stop there. Not only were they hungry and and open to the teaching, explaining God's Word better than they had understood it before. Number two, the Bereans received the message with great eagerness. That's a great word. It's a wonderful thing to be an eager learner. The New Living Translation says it this way. They listened eagerly to Paul's message. The message says it nicely also. It says the Jews received Paul's message with enthusiasm. Isn't that good? The Bereans were eager Bible students. They were enthusiastic Bible students. But it didn't stop there. There are plenty of Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses out there who are more receptive and eager Bible students than you and I are. But they're missing one critical ingredient that made the Bereans such great Bible students. Number three, the Bereans examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This third ingredient in being a Berean is missing among so many people who claim to follow Jesus Christ. I really like how the New Century Version puts it. It says they studied the Scriptures every day to find out if these things were true. And the New Living Translation says it this way, they searched the Scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. I bet the Bereans were on Paul's mind when he later would write these words to his apprentice Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The Bereans were model students of God's word. They received Paul's teaching enthusiastically with open ears and an open mind, but they didn't take what he said at face value. They did do their homework, even though he was the great apostle Paul. Think about this. Paul was a a missionary extraordinaire. He was God's chosen instrument to teach the word of God to the Gentiles on two different continents. 
Paul was that great missionary who planted dozens of churches in, in, in a number of different countries. Uh, Paul was the one who would go on to write half of the books of the New Testament. But even Paul commended those who tested what he said against the Word of God. And, and that struck me over the years. If we are to t- test even Paul's teaching with the Word of God, then by all means, we should test each other's teaching with the Word of God. It's a wonderful thing to test a pastor or teacher's teaching against the always perfect, always without error, always pure and holy, living Word of God. You see, once they tested Paul's teaching against Scripture, once they used the measuring stick of God's Word to make sure that Paul was teaching them 100% truth, then and only then did they believe his teaching. Then and only then did they hide it in their hearts and walk in obedience to it. Oh, how I hope and pray that millions of Mormons and and Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientologists and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and even atheists and agnostics would do the same thing that these Bereans did. You see, when pastors and teachers do what they're supposed to do to teach and preach God's word accurately, And Jesus' followers do what they're supposed to do. Eagerly receive and test the teaching and preaching with Scripture every day. It really is a match made in heaven. Amen? I want you to remember what our mission statement is here at Impact Christian Church. We exist as a church to love, to learn, and to serve. And the second of those has been our focus in this passage today. God's focus for us today is on learning. That is one of our highest callings as a church to learn God's word. And each of us has a critical role to play in that calling. My job as your pastor is to correctly handle the word of truth by faithfully and accurately teaching God's word to you. But it doesn't stop there. Your job is to actively listen and receive that teaching, but not just take my word for it. It is your responsibility to test everything I teach with Scripture to make sure that it is faithful and accurate. Over the years, there have been many times when one of our church members has come up to me after they've heard one of my sermons and they've pulled me aside and and said something like this, you know, Pastor Dane, I don't think what you said at that certain point of the sermon lines up with God's word. And at times, as they explained what they were getting at, I would re-explain what I was trying to say in the sermon. Sometimes I didn't communicate it very well, and they would agree that what I was teaching was faithful and accurate when tested with God's word. At other times, when that person shared that concern with me, I had to admit they were right. And something I said in that sermon was an error. And so my typical practice has been to get up the next Sunday and retract what I said and correct it. And that's a beautiful thing. Doing something like this, uh, kind of pulling your pastor aside and pointing something out to him or making him feel a little uncomfortable, that may seem a little intimidating to you. But honestly, it's a beautiful thing. Sure, it's intimidating at times, but it's a beautiful thing when each of us does our part to make sure our church is faithfully and accurately teaching 
God's word. I have a role to play and you have a role to play to make sure that we as a church are faithfully teaching God's word. Neither of us can slack off with our responsibility. Well, I want to share with you five steps to becoming a Berean, because I am convinced that God wants you and me to be Bereans, to follow in the footsteps of these Bereans who were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Let me give you these five very practical steps to becoming a Berean. Step number one, be an eager and enthusiastic student of God's word. Come to church on time with a Bible in hand and open and having an open mind and heart. Now, if you watch us online, uh, if you don't have major health issues, I would encourage you to get back in an in-person service as soon as possible. Some of you aren't able to do that, I understand. And so if you continue to join us uh, for a, an online service, I encourage you to have a specific time each Sunday that you do that. Uh, whether it's right at 10 o'clock when these services premiere or at 11 or 12, pick a specific time and be disciplined with when you join us for this broadcast. Be an eager and enthusiastic student of God's Word. Come on time with a Bible in hand and an open mind and heart. I hope you never forget what I'm about to say. Making church a priority doesn't begin on Sunday morning. At the absolute latest, it begins on Saturday night. Some of us have a bad habit of coming to church late and tired, not because we have insomnia or because our car won't start, but because we choose to stay up way too late on Saturday nights. And that's a choice. You and your family can choose to go to bed earlier on Saturday nights. You can choose to set your clothes out ahead of time. You can choose to have your Bibles ready. You can choose to have gas in the car early. You can choose to get a jump on breakfast. All of these things are choices, and we need to start making those choices further in advance. No later than Saturday night. You see, when you're in a hurry, it's really hard to be an eager and enthusiastic student of God's Word. When you're in a hurry and running late, chances are your mind and heart won't be fully open to God's Word. Well, step number two to becoming a Berean. Carefully listen to the message being taught with an open Bible in hand. I love how Kevin DeYoung puts it. He writes, It worries me when I speak at different places and read through the Scripture text without hearing anyone open their Bibles or at least staring down at a screen, I want to say, you don't know me. You don't know if you should listen to me. You don't know if anything I have to say is worthwhile. I hope you didn't come to hear me. God is the one worth listening to, and He only speaks by His Word. So, I'll wait a few seconds while you grab a Bible. He goes on to say, incidentally, you do not want to be at a church where you can listen to sermon after sermon and it doesn't even matter if your Bible is open. You want to be at a church where the preaching is pulling you into the text to see it, to listen to it, to find connections with it. The best stuff in every sermon should arise from the truth you see in the text, not from the illustrations, the stories or the preacher's own enlightenment. And to that I say Amen. Amen. Step number three to becoming a Berean. Take notes. Write down questions so you can test what is taught with Scripture. 
Whenever I'm in your shoes sitting under the teaching of another pastor or teacher, I almost always try to have a pen and paper in hand. I want to take notes because my mind forgets things I hear. I want to go back and review those things to to cross-check some of those things. I want to study those beyond the time I hear that sermon. We have to be honest with each other. Most American Christians believe they have fulfilled their duty if they have gone to church and politely listened to the sermon or at least gone to church and pretended to politely listen to the sermon. It's as if many Christians think there's this checklist and I check it off. Okay, I went to church today and and God's somehow okay with that, even if I got nothing out of it. Well, you need to understand nowhere does it say in Scripture that God is pleased with politely listening to his word. Nowhere in the New Testament do we read politely listen to the word. What we actually read are these commands study to show yourself approved, correctly handle the word of truth. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. We need to put wheels to what we're hearing. Step number four. If you want to become a Berean, spend quality time in God's word every day. You will never become a Berean if you just study the Bible once a week. The Bereans were in God's word every day. You and I must be in God's word every day as well. If you have a smartphone, I encourage you to download the Bible app. This is what it looks like. You can go to your app store, uh, regardless of whether you have an Apple phone, uh, an iPhone, or an Android. Uh, You can go to the store and get this for free. It's the U version, just colloquially uh, called the, the Bible app. This is a robust tool to have on your phone. It's a great tool filled with Bible studies. You can find five-day Bible studies, seven-day Bible studies. Uh, you can send it to a friend or family member, do a Bible study with them. I encourage you uh, to have this Bible app on your phone so that anywhere you go, you can have a copy of the Scripture and some devotions with you. Some of you might say today, well, I don't have a smartphone. No problem. Uh, let me introduce you to the best-selling book of all time. It's called the Bible. And you can have a hard copy of this yourself. If you don't have one, please reach out to me and let me know. I'll get you one for free as long as you promise to read it. As you're diving into God's Word, if you don't have a regular reading schedule, I encourage you to go to the New Testament and begin in the book of John. Be in God's Word. Read at least a chapter every day. And don't just read it and slam your Bible shut. Think about it. Ask questions about it. Interact with it. Pray about it. Spend time in God's Word if you want to be a Berean. And then finally, step number five to becoming a Berean. Give the Bible the final say in all matters of life and doctrine. Please don't let me or any other pastor or teacher have the final word on matters of life and doctrine. I don't care how smart or convincing the pastor or teacher seems to be. You must never allow any man or woman to have the final say on matters of life and doctrine. God must have the final say. And God's final say is detailed right here in the pages of Scripture. I love how Chuck Swindoll says it. He writes, No matter how gifted or charismatic or well-trained and experienced your Bible teacher or pastor may be, form the healthy habit of checking what is being said against the Scriptures. The Word of God must always have the final say. If you truly want to become of more noble character like the Bereans, let God and let His Word 
have the final say in all matters related to your life and your doctrine. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your holy word. And once again, you've challenged us. You've put before us this wonderful example of a missionary team, Paul and Silas. They get kicked out of one city, no big deal. They go to the next city and tell them about Jesus. And when they get kicked out of that city, they'll just go on to the next city. Lord, uh, they didn't know anything about the term surrender or quit. And I pray that we would be the same. Lord, that we would never quit, but continue to do what you've called us to do here on earth. Spreading heaven in our corner of the world until you call us home to heaven. And Lord, I thank you for this wonderful example of the Bereans who were so noble. Not because they were rich or because they were, uh, Lord, from noble families. They were noble because they prioritized the studying of your word. And they didn't take what they heard at face value. They received it eagerly and enthusiastically, but they tested it with Scripture. Oh God, I pray that we would be Bereans. That, Lord, we would also be of more noble character. That we would have your word as the final say in our lives. Not what our favorite pastor says. Not what our favorite author says. May your word always be the final say for us in all our lives, in all our decision making, in all of our understanding of solid, sound doctrine. May your word have the spot of priority in everything related to our life and doctrine. Lord, may your word have the final say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're here today and you've never put Jesus Christ in charge of your life, I urge you to do that today. And I just want to encourage you to remember those ABCs. A, admit that you were a sinner and need Jesus. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And he's your only way to have a relationship with God and go to heaven. And C, choose to follow him as Savior and Lord beginning today. And I want to be bold enough to ask you, will you make that decision right now? Will you accept Jesus Christ right now to be your Savior and Lord? I encourage you to make that decision. Reach out to us right now by phone, uh, 760-246-4100, or send us an email at info at greaterimpact.cc. We would love to communicate with you about how Jesus Christ can be Savior and Lord of your life, and we'd love to help you set up a time to get baptized as soon as possible. May God bless you as you love and trust and serve our Lord Jesus Christ, and you dive into his word every day this week because he has called you to be a Berean. God bless you, church.